Welcome back to another episode of Prestigious Minds. How's it going? It's going pretty well, pretty well. Still nice weather out here. Yes, and quite sunny. Not raining. Cool-ish. About about 60 degrees. It's, it's getting cool, man. I'm telling you. Like, we're hitting those like solid 80-degree days, and it's sloping off. It's nice. It's nice because the humidity is starting to go down, and if you live in the southeast, you know that the humidity is a pain in the butt. Yeah, I mean, getting the swamp trousers is never good. <laughs> no, no, it is it is not. We're going to swap lanes here. This will be, I believe, the fifth installment of Vanderbilt. Man, five episodes of Vanderbilt. That's great. We only did four for the other two. Yeah, I think we've kind of navigated Vanderbilt a little bit more detailed. This is us also trying to catch a better stride in our episodes, you know. I'm always trying to improve for the listener quality and give you more accurate information on history, but also make it entertaining. Yep. So, And there may be just a little more entertaining, an entertainment factor with Vanderbilt because he's such a character. You're going to see in a few, a few minutes like the shenanigans he makes his family go through. It's pretty funny. Well... It's, not for them. But I was about to say it's not. It's not very funny at all for anybody. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is for us. Yeah. Well. <laughs> hey. Okay. So let's dive into it. The last time we talked about the Vanderbilt family and their living situation, they were in Bologna Hall. Oh, Bologna Hall. That was with Mister Thomas Gibbons. He owned that place, didn't he? He did. And so they ended up moving away. And Vanderbilt, so at the time of Vanderbilt moving away, he's a fairly successful businessman. He has money to put his family up in a fairly decent house. But yeah, he, he probably, you know, gave him a nice place to live, you know, a good neighborhood. Absolutely yeah. not. Wait, what? No. No, 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 no. The frugal Vanderbilt <laughs> giving his family a nice quality of life? Nah, that ain't happening I mean, yet. Surely he wouldn't put him in the slums or anything, right? Actually, as corny as it may sound... He absolutely did. He put them in a small, small, like cramped living space in Manhattan. It was very cheap. Very cheap. And his wife, Sophia. Vanderbilt, obviously, I am going to go on a limb on here, and I do not feel bad about saying this about Cornelius Vanderbilt. I don't think he respected his wife very much or his children or their living situation or being a good man. Man, I mean... He had 13 kids. Like, you'd think he would respect at least one of them. <laughs> I don't know if at this point he had quite 13 kids, but he had more than a few. Man. But I think she finally won out because he did end up building a fairly large mansion halfway between Stapleton and Tompkinsville. Well, so, well, I wonder if this is his idea or her idea. He's, or he's, I wonder if you just stay on his boats. He's like, hey, you're fine, Manhattan. Who cares? <laughs> Possibly. Probably. I mean, he didn't spend most of his time on shore at this point, I'm sure. So, he built this mansion, and this was the first of many Vanderbilt mansions, which the majority were built by his grandchildren and children. But, needless to say, um, he did not hold back very much. Seven years later... Keeping the original Staten Island place, the similar resident, Vanderbilt, ended up building a four-story townhouse at 10 Washington Place near Washington Square in Greenwich Village. Which, well, I mean, his, his wife actually liked that. I mean, you know, she's moving from the slums to this place. 
It's a nice four-story townhouse. No, no, no. So, so let me restate that. So they built this mansion between Stapleton and Tompkinsville, right outside right. the city. She enjoyed this very much. She was like, "Hell yeah!" But okay. within the next seven years, they kept the original place that they had on Staten Island, and then he built another place, a four-story townhouse in Greenwich Village. And Sophia did not like this, but this is where Vanderbilt wanted them to spend the majority of their nine months. She protested this to no end. Actually, Cornelius, as always being a distant husband and unfaithful, which we'll get in in a minute, threatened to have her put in an asylum because she did not (laughs) want to live there. And he was like, if you don't stop, (laughs) if you don't stop complaining, I'm going to send you to the crazy house. What? You You can just do that? I... I don't know if maybe the time period just meant that you could just do that with whoever, no matter who you were, or maybe Vanderbilt had enough money to pay some doctors off. But she actually ended up three months incarcerated in an asylum until she announced her willingness to live at Greenwich (laughs) Village, and then she was released. I mean, I wonder if the doctor was like, oh man, if you're crazy enough to argue with him, then you are crazy. I just think that the... uh, the fact that she had to announce that she would be willing to live at Greenwich Village would equal her not being crazy. Like, okay, it isn't that you actually have a problem. It's that you just do not like what your husband is making you live through and you're saying no. And he's like, until you say yes, you're going to be in the asylum. Wow. I mean, that was a, this is, this is a different world. Okay. This is, this is crazy. If you didn't do what your husband said, do the assailant's album for you, you know? Like, they're just going to lock you up. I mean, crazy. I mean, I've heard stories of lobotomies and stuff that were given to people because mostly women, because they were just argumentative or they didn't, you know, like how their husbands acted. That would, that actually happened. They would lobotomize them. That's horrific. And if you don't know what a lobotomy is, it's removing part of your brain. Most of these people would just become catatonic. And not actually be people anymore. Yeah, thankfully we've come a long way in medicine. Which I can't say that anyone in their right mind... I didn't grow up or live back then. But I wouldn't imagine that most people think this is the proper way to treat a problem. Oh, they did then. But I I digress. We can get back to the insane asylum. The insane asylum. Well, she's not in it anymore. She spent three months and she was like, nope. And uh, agreed to live at Greenwich Village. Vanderbilt actually ended up having 13 children with... Sophia, so regardless of what Vanderbilt did, I guess there was something there, whether it was just survival, it's hard for me to imagine love. One of those children died very young at the age of like four. This is also another interesting factor that played a very large role in the Vanderbilt family tree, actually, was Vanderbilt more or less ignored his daughters. Now, he kind of ignored all of his children, but he was somewhat misogynistic didn't really care about his daughters as far as seeing them succeed. He was more or less gone most of the time, treating his vices versus helping his family. Now, he paid for, I'm, I'm assuming, most things. He made sure that they had everything they needed, probably sent them to proper schooling. It's kind of a weird dynamic where it's like, I'm going to make sure my family has good things now, but I'm not going to be a good father. <laughs> <laughs> like... Like, you're going to go to this school. 
but I will never come to a baseball game. You know, like that's what it seems like. Oh yeah, I mean Vanderbilt is very self-centered. Like you can totally tell. He doesn't really care about his family. He just he probably just wants someone to like eventually take over when he dies, and this is you know it's probably why he did thirteen attempts to get something right. It's very sad and tragic, honestly. Because if you if you look at the way he did his business, you're like, man, he surely he was a businessman. I mean, he wasn't educated, but educated in the ways of the world. Then when you look at his family, you're like, wow, you're just a piece of garbage, aren't you? It's like I said previously, very strong contrast between Rockefeller and Carnegie, who both very much were faithful men, loved their families intently. And people. Yeah. I feel like Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt is like Scrooge. Like, I I think we might have made that reference earlier, but he's just not very happy with anybody. He's just like, I got to go make money. And outside of making money, I'm going to go spend the night with a prostitute and uh, gamble on horses. Well, I mean, like, was he... It didn't seem like he was just one of those people that, ooh, I just want to have a good time because he was kind of cheap. Well, he, for what, he, he for was what cheap end? on everything else but his vices, I would imagine. <laughs> nice. Actually, no, he was cheap on his vices, too. Like, he grew up on the docks, so the whorehouses that he visited were on the docks, which were typically not known to be that high class or that... No, you're not like pretty woman, I'm guessing. But, but, well, I'm not talking about, like, on that kind of level. I'm talking, like, more likely to have diseases, not very clean, right. very dirty, dingy. He never grew out of that. He he was like, I'm the richest man in the world. I could go find the the best escort around. No, I'm going to I'm gonna stick at the dock's edge. Wow. He actually eventually ended up contracting uh, syphilis because of that. Oh. And giving it to his wife. Oh, God. Yeah. What a piece of work. Yeah. We try our best to keep it friendly, friendly, but man, Vanderbilt makes it hard when talking about his family, man. I tell you what. (laughs) Talking about his children, his oldest son, William, often known as Billy, was he considered dim-witted and slow, mainly because... He did not progress through Columbia Grammar School in Manhattan as quickly as he should have, probably. He was always belittled by his father for that. Right. I think he was a little uh, timid, too. I mean, of course, why wouldn't you be with a father like that? I believe that was Cornelius Jeremiah was the one that was timid with the nervous disab- uh, disposition. He was he was shy, and he had a stutter, and he also suffered from seizures. Seizures if I can learn how to speak. Vanderbilt used to whip him to basically tell him to stop having seizures. That, Wait, what? Y- yeah. He used to whip him? He used <laughs> to whip his son because he had seizures, and he was like, if I whip you, you won't have these seizures because you're totally doing this to, for whatever attention. Wow. Uh, you'd think after like the 10th time it didn't work, you'd stop. Yeah. Because of this borderline, I don't even think this is borderline abuse. And obviously today is definitely not borderline. Yeah. But back then, I guess this was considered borderline, but well. So since I mixed up those two sons, what about Billy? Like what was, you know, what was his deal? Billy, I think he was just kind of slow. Maybe he didn't catch on as fast. Being the oldest, I'm assuming that Vanderbilt probably looked down upon Billy con- considering that he probably originally would want him to be the successor in the family line of business. But being the fact that he was so slow, he didn't like this. And obviously Cornelius Jeremiah was the second oldest son. We already, we already talked about all the daughters, which were sprinkled throughout that he just did not care about. So he wasn't going to hand it over to his daughter, but Cornelius Jeremiah was 
very timid. He was considered very shy, nervous person. He also suffered, like we said, from seizures. So he was not fit for taking on the family business either in his eyes. But to answer your question, eventually Vanderbilt worked out a deal with Daniel Drew for Billy to work at his Wall Street brokerage house in 1839 when he turned 18 years old. A few years later, his son wanted to marry someone. I do not have her name out in front of me, but I don't think it's relevant for this story. At the disdain of his father, because Billy's hourly wage was probably not very much, and he was actually his living situation was heavily subsidized by his father. And his father was not very pleased that he decided to marry this woman anyway, and actually pulled him from the firm bought a 70-acre farm, stuck him and his new wife on it, and said, you will get no further aid, basically disowned him to a degree, because, ironically, Vanderbilt did not see that it was fit that his son would try to get married and start a family without having a completely self-supporting livelihood. I mean, I, I get that. If you're a normal person, you're like, man, you probably need to grow up a little bit before you have a kid and a wife and whatnot, but... I mean, and honestly, if you gave me a 70-acre farm, I'd be pretty pretty happy. But back then, like, that was... You didn't want people to be... I mean, people were going away from the farms. So, you're just trying to, get, trying to get rid of him? Yeah, basically. Wow. We'll get back to Billy later on. Back to Cornelius Jeremiah, which is the middle son. He actually became a more of a uh, fraud, writing checks in his father's name, and a gambler. Eventually ended up committing suicide. Oh, and I think he actually spent some time in the asylum as well. Yeah, well, I mean... He, he may yeah. have actually had some problems due Sound. to the seizures and or his father's abuse. Yeah, I mean, whippings while having seizures probably isn't good for the brain. I can only imagine. Moving on, his youngest son, George Washington Vanderbilt, and this is a side note about Washington. He His favorite person, or I guess the person that he idolized or looked up to the most was actually George Washington himself. Which Vanderbilt probably was not quite old enough to remember Washington as alive, but I believe he, yeah, so 1796, Vanderbilt was alive when, when Washington was. So he has a very vivid memory of Washington as probably a child. He looked up to him. George Washington Vanderbilt was the prized son. He was the, supposed to be the successor to, to Vanderbilt. He gave him more attention than the other, and acknowledgement and acceptance that the other children ever grew up with. He eventually actually ended up dying in the Civil War before he ever got married. I think he might have been 20 years old at that. He was fairly young. And then most of the daughters ended up getting married to people that worked in the Vanderbilt biz, like family business organization where there was a captain, a prominent member of the society that dealt with the Vanderbilt steamboat operations and railroads. So they were fairly well taken care of and keeping with his boorish attitude and actions, he often graced the presence of many prostitutes. I know that's kind of a short jump, but for the most point, Vanderbilt was not very involved with his daughter's lives at all. Oh man. I mean, he, he had two sons he really didn't care much for, and the one he had died in the Civil War. That, you know, that, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Like, because you hear about, I believe it was Rockefeller who um, got away, like, who didn't go in the Civil War. He kind of paid his way out of it. Or was that? Um, that was both. 
was yeah. both Carnegie yeah, okay. and Rockefeller. It was both of them. So I wonder if Vanderbilt had the opportunity. He was just like, no, no, you need to go fight. I wonder how he felt about that. I don't know if... I don't know if Vanderbilt himself had much say in that. I think he might have protested, and his son probably pulled the whole, like, I want to go sign up underneath your nose kind of thing. Because oh. Vanderbilt at this point was, during the Civil War, was way too old, which we'll get into the Civil War later on, but that's kind of looking a little bit far ahead. He was too old to fight in the Civil War. Rounding this little portion off, he never gave up his love of horse racing. Well, if you want to list it from greatest to least it would be business making money then horse races and then women and then everything else that was his vices and his pleasures that he never turned away from he was almost a man who lived to serve himself only yeah he never got away from that stereotypical sailor attitude did he does not seem so even i mean hell at this point he's in his 50s wow he just lived his whole (laughs) life this way and he isn't gonna change now he never grew up did he He did not. He did not. We're going to take a short break for this episode, and then we'll be back for the ocean exploits of Vanderbilt in South America. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you are enjoying it. There is one little thing that we ask that you may do for us, and that is click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. We really appreciate it, and thank you so much. And we'll get back to it okay so we are back in this episode we're around the time of 18 the late 1840s and california is having a gold rush and now a lot of people over the next several years are trying to go to california especially after they hear of that nice wonderful weather fertile soil san francisco bay you know it's booming yeah they can surf they you well maybe they didn't surf probably not Probably not. But anyway, there's just one massive problem, and that is how are you supposed to get to California from the other side of the Mississippi River? Well, you start walking, man. No, 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 no. Well, I guess you could, but ideally, there were two prominent routes. That was wagon train across the U.S. of A., which was long, hard, and arduous, and very, very dangerous because it was unlawful territory. You know, you had portions that were not settled, and Indian tribes would raid as well as bandits on the trail. And then you had the Rocky Mountains. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there was very large portions of the year where you couldn't even cross because there's this thing called winter and uh, snow and ice. You are the game Oregon Trail. Yes, that um, went to Oregon. Right. Kind of reminds me of that, though, you know? Wagon bit. train, Indians, all that stuff. Well, that, that was like your first mode, and also very expensive, very time-consuming. Your next mode was by steamship, and steamship would take you all the way around Cape Horn, which, if you don't know where that's at, that's the very southern tippy-tip of South America. That's a much longer route. Much safer route, but very, very long. I wouldn't say it was the safest. Cause, I mean, you got sharks, right? Well, you have sharks, chance of drowning, hitting something. Who knows? Right. right. Those are your two primary modes, but there is a diamond in the rough. Right now, there is one company that uses a combination of steamships and stagecoaches to cross Panama 
Central America, so I'm sure many of you have heard of the Panama Canal. This did not exist then. But what they would do is they would have steamships, they would go down there, and they would, you know, load everything up on wagon trains. They would send it across a little stretch, the Isthmus of Panama. They would load it all back on steamships, and they'd go all the way up to San Francisco or wherever they were going to California. There was no canal, so like I said, they had the wagon trains, but this was actually a operation that was heavily subsidized by the U.S. government for mail coming in and out of California to the East Coast. Well, I didn't think about that. Like you, you have to maintain a posted system to people out west. That's crazy. What's actually yes, and it's funny because they say it was heavily subsidized. The government basically was losing money to ship mail this way because it was a lot quicker than, and and probably more dependable versus train wagon, stagecoach, and navigating Cape Horn. Continuing from that, this is where. We introduce Vanderbilt into this portion of the of the series. If you go a little bit further north, there's a country called Nicaragua. In Nicaragua, there was the San Juan River and a large lake called Nicaragua Lake. Vanderbilt had this idea of what if we use the river and lake to travel via steamboat the majority of the way to the Pacific Ocean. This would be a little bit shorter by, I think, 100 miles or so, maybe a few hundred, so... Definitely shorter route. You would have to probably build a canal or a series of locks and canals to make it all the way across. And so what Vanderbilt did was, I guess like his company, along with the U.S. government, they formalized a contract between Vanderbilt and Nicaragua called to pay for Vanderbilt to pay the government of Nicaragua an immediate $10,000 in cash and $20,000 in company stock. And then to be followed by $10,000 in cash each year until the canal opened. Construction was estimated to take 12 years. After opening the canal, Vanderbilt was to pay the Nicaraguan government 20% of net profits for a period of 85 years. So he was basically leasing this land by selling 20% of the profits off to the government. At the end of that period... The Nicaraguan government and whatnot would go to the people of Nicaragua. So the government and the people would own it. It would become sovereign land, their own country. There was a rainy day clause, though, that stipulated that if the canal was not um, was unbuildable, they couldn't build it, Vanderbilt was able to use a different operation via railroad or any other version of linking the two oceans together. And those were the same terms. Wow, I mean, that's a, that's a lot, lot of stuff. 20% net profits. For 85 years. That's just, that's not the whole company. That's just his deal, right? That would be his his portion of the deal along with uh, $20,000 in company stock. So I don't know how much the percentage of the company that was. But that was, so this was the deal that was supposed to be hashed out, like formalized. Right. But there was a problem. There's another country that's still lingering around that's pretty powerful called Great Britain. Maybe you've heard of them. They claim to be the protectorate of the Nicaragua's uh, Mosquito population. They use this as an excuse primarily because they did not want a canal connecting the two oceans that was under the complete control of the American government. Meanwhile, Vanderbilt and company was trying to petition petition British banks in London to fund this operation. They were very skeptical, and they're like, I don't want to do this. And so they did not want to fund a years-long project that would seem too costly to effectively recoup their investments. So 
Childs, an engineer, civil engineer that was hired by Vanderbilt, went and did a study of the San Juan River to figure out where best to place them. The well, place them, place the canals and locks. There were five of them around the rapids. Given this news, Vanderbilt is not surprising to realize that almost immediately after his return to New York and London, he was like, I'm going to go see for myself this river if I actually need five canals. That's a lot of canals, right? He wanted to go down there and check it out. For the most part, he was able to cross four of the five rapids, regardless where the boat uh, scraped the bottom of the river, because the rapids are not. He did make it past four of the five rapids, but then there was a portion of the river that dropped eight feet and several yards, like within oh. several yards, yeah. basically an eight-foot drop, which is pretty significant for a boat to try to cross that. Right. He actually uses a series of like trees and pulleys and whatnot and ropes to actually kind of guide the the ship over these rapids. <laughs> I can only imagine what kind of feat that was. On New Year's Day of 1851, the director, as the ship was called, slipped into Lake Nicaragua at San Carlos and she became the first ever steamer. And Vanderbilt, the first ever captain to have navigated the full 119 miles of the San Juan River. From San Carlos, the Commodore proceeded west for 60 miles to the place called Virgin Bay, 12 miles from the Pacific coast, and already selected by Childs for use as a terminal. This was kind of like the best like drop-off location after, the, after navigating the majority of the Nicaraguan Lake. Beyond this point, workers employed by Childs were already busy felling trees to clear a road to San Juan del Sur. On his way back east, Vanderbilt moored the director just above the formidable Castillo Rapids and told those who traveled with him that a portage would have to be made at that spot when carrying paying customers. Other obstacles, meanwhile, were to be improved by Vanderbilt's engineers, whom he charged with blasting and otherwise removing rocks from the remaining four clusters of rapids. So he basically was like, hey, you can go through there and you're going to blast this river to smithereens and use a lot of machinery, move all these rocks out of the way so that this is a little bit smoother and we can actually get boats through here. And then we're going to only make a canal around this portion of the rapids because hmm. it just doesn't make sense to lift the boat up and down. Way too costly and expensive and not very comfortable, I'm imagining. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's just funny. The guy's like, we need five locks. He's like, no, you don't. I got this. He's like, hold my beer. Yeah, hold hold my Vanderbilt beer. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just kind of funny. He's like, I can do this. I wonder if it was like tr- to prove a point. He's like, I'm 50 years old. I haven't captained a boat in forever. We're going to make this work. He's like, let me take the reins. We're going to see what you're made of. <laughs> it's funny. They kind of MacGyvered their way through it, too. Pulleys and felling trees and... I believe what they ended up doing was, in this operation, at least for now, was they were able to steamboat people, and then they would travel across to to get to the uh, to the other side. So the idea was not necessarily the canal around the rapids was a big deal. It was the can, it was like the twelve miles of land between Lake Nicaragua right. and the Pacific Ocean that they wanted a canal built. Going on from that. On July 3rd, 1851, so the summer of the same year, the Vanderbilt Company actually put out an ad for travel from San Francisco via Nicaragua. The population of eastbound passengers was generally less than half of the count of the people that traveled to the west coast. So I think the steamboat, primarily for this chip, 
this trip was able to hold 500 people, but they would stuff as many as 600 people on board, which is, I guess, not uncommon. We've talked about that. The eastbound population was probably about 300 people. Obviously, more people probably going to California than coming from California. Rates and charges from New York to California from westbound trade paid for the majority of it and all the rest basically just fit the cost of the operation. Right. Continuing his plan to do business, this canal that he wanted, which was like his his brainchild, his his pet project, Childs estimated a total cost of $32 million. Is that in today's money? No. Oh, wow. This is... Like 1850. That is so much money. That is a significant amount of money. Prohibitively amount of money. Despite the fact of how difficult this would be, there was actually a lot of interest that seemed to pop up as the topographical engineers in the United States in London declared that the project actually laid out as Childs did was a feasible project to be had. They said, you know, without ungodly amount of funds, this is somewhat reasonable to build canals through here. Yeah. So just to restate that that thirty two million dollars is a billion dollars today. That is a hefty sum. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. I mean hey, I mean, realistically, what is the gigafactory they're supposed to be building? What does that cost? A billion dollars? There's no telling. There's no telling. I mean I'm assuming the infrastructure is already there, they wouldn't be building there, so you don't have to really worry about that, but Probably not pretty cheap. The majority of the funding for this project initially was by Vanderbilt and a few close associates as well as family members. And they were able to invest $2,000 per share to cover the initial expenses of this project. Possessed 102 quote-unquote grand shares in the project as a whole. So not very many shares, but that those were labeled grand shares basically I guess as like a founder's you know, fee. Right. Due to speculation in the project, these shares went from $20. So not the grand shares, but general shares went from $20 to $50, which caused the $2,000 grand shares to go up all the way to a peak of $13,600. Wow. Before they even started plowing dirt, they could have basically sold these shares and made a pretty good profit just off speculation alone. Yeah, that's crazy. The company to do the work was the Atlantic and Pacific Ship Canal Company, and their proposal of toll to carry merchandise and stuff was $3 per ton, which the London banks, or I guess their representative, thought was an exorbitant amount would prohibit trade. Along with this, Bates' criticism eventually killed the Nicaraguan Canal. Like, just killed it. This was a nail in the coffin after much negotiation. It just didn't seem feasible to do it. That's crazy to think about all this money just getting already sunk into it. and then. Yeah, I mean, like I said, even even though Vanderbilt had not really made money off the venture yet, he had made money purely off the speculation. Citing a $2 dividend declared for the stateside investors, the Nikwa Oglins argued that their 10% should have come out before such any declaration. This is part of the deal of running this business through Nicaragua was, you know, they're stopping at these ports and they're demanding their 10% like tax, I guess you would call it, should come out before these $2 dividends to all their shareholders in the statesides because that would lessen the amount that Nicaraguans would get. Subsequently, the government... Um, sent a delegation to New York to discuss the matter, but Joseph Wright, which was in partnership with Vanderbilt on this ordeal, didn't even meet with him, like refused to meet with him, and Vanderbilt basically was like, uh, no, 
No, I don't care. What are you going to do? It also seems that Vanderbilt lost interest in this project, um, which was also known, like the company was known as Accessory Transit. He did not care too much about it after he realized that the canal would never be built. Yeah, yeah, I I mean, I, I get that. You mean you spend all your time on this pet project just for to get shot down? Oh yeah, just can you imagine? You're know, like, I really don't care. Like, why am I in here? Why not? If I'm not going to undertake this big project, you know, if that's what he wanted to do. Vanderbilt actually had a very large influence at this point. He's at the point in his career where his name means something. In 1852, he had threatened to end his leases of the Vanderbilt line of steamships that were servicing the Nicaraguan trade. This caused the stock of accessory transit to plummet as soon as Vanderbilt announced this, and he was able to short the stock and reaped millions from the fall in its price. So he shorted the stock and made millions from it. Oh man, he, manip- like he, like, <laughs> he manipulated it. Sounds like he just—he's sour, and he's like, "I'm gonna get. It's—it's it's gonna be worth my time at this point." You know, one hundred percent. One month later, of resigning his presidency of Assessor Transit, so after this, he assigned, assigned, resigned as the president. He wrote because he was—he wrote the reason why he did it was because quote unable to act in concert with the. Ma- with a majority of the directors whose right it is to rule. Thereafter, in response to a request from the Accessory Transit Board, Vanderbilt agreed to sell the company's seven steamboats, including the Prometheus, Daniel Webster, and the Pacific, at a price of $1.35 million and 150000 of that being the company bonds payable one year from the bill of sale and a balance representing cash to be paid immediately. We got $150,000 in company bonds, and the rest of it was a cash payout for those three ships. Well, He's just making money left and right oh, for, yeah. for not even conducting business, it seems like, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's strategic, but still, I mean, a lot of thought goes into it, but man, it's like $35 million. Well, more than that. It's like four. <laughs> Forty million. Bucks. It's like it's like the it's like the less he does, the more he makes. Yeah. <laughs> Two days after this deal, Vanderbilt actually rejoined the Accessory Transit Board. The reason why he did this was primarily, I guess, um, the Accessory Transit kind of needed his name to kind of help them sell business because he was obviously well known in the logistics company, especially when it comes to steamships. Sadly, though, an antiquated steamer. On the side, on the California side of the southern route, known as the Independence, suffered an accident on northbound off the southernmost point of California's Margarita Island. Less than 300 yards off the rocky shore, the Independence struck a rock amid rough seas. In the wee hours of the morning and immediately filled with water, the Independence had been licensed to accommodate 250 people. But she actually had 450 people on board. Nearly all of them were asleep at the time that the uh, accident occurred when wise, rising water blocked the draft of the ship's flues, fire erupted. Men and women, as the flames were spreading, screamed frantically, recalled one survivor. The former submitting their breast, the latter tearing their disheveled hair. The scene beggars description. Wealth and poverty were all on equality and sank together to rise no more. 176 people died, but the Wall Street stock of the accessory transit remained buoyant because it was a leased ship. So the stock stayed where it was at and it did not sink. Well, even though you had all these people that died. 176 people died of 450. That's That kind of goes back to our discussion earlier about... You know, trains don't sink. 
Yeah, and also the fact that they were overfilling these ships. Yeah, that seems to be a common occurrence. You know, I guess they're legally rated to carry a certain amount, but what? That was over. That was yeah, nearly double. Yeah, that's crazy. During all of this, which Vanderbilt obviously was only on the board of the Accessory Transit Company, he was planning a family vacation. <laughs> of course, he was. Yeah, in <laughs> Europe to go on a Europe, a grand vacation of Europe with his family, and he actually did take his whole family and paid for everything. Well, just reading the newspaper, oh man, a hundred people died. Hey, honey, you want to take the kids? To yeah, Europe? you want to go to Europe? France is looking pretty good this time of year. On my luxury steamer that one I have built. <laughs> this is the exploits of Vanderbilt and the Nicaraguan government. I would say of Central America, but it was almost solely the Nicaraguan government that his company tried to exploit. And it somewhat worked in his personal favor. It did not work in the company favor whatsoever. Also, Nicaraguan wasn't a completely sovereign nation or government. So that's prob- that's the majority reason why Great Britain not agreeing to it was such a big deal. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even though he made that deal for like 85 years, would he have really, would that company have really held to that agreement? Probably not, but we also have to look at who would have even known if they would have been in business 85 years from then. Right. I mean, you're looking, you're on the cusp of trains and railroads being everything. I can't imagine Vanderbilt not being not seeing the you know the writing on the walls being like, hey, okay, we're going to have rails across the United States, and it's going to be way easier. He probably was just trying to make a quick buck while he could. I think originally he went into this and he was like full bore, but then once that canal project portion of it kind of died off and he knew that he wasn't going to get the funding needed, he was just kind of like, meh, I'm going to salvage it the best I can. Yeah, scorched earth, sounds like. Fun fact about the railroads, um, almost all of the transcontinental railroads like going across the U.S., almost all of them are heavily subsidized by the U.S. government, and almost every single one of them went bankrupt because they were paid per mile of track. And so instead of running the most direct route with track, they would run the longest route they could because they got more money from the government for it. Right. I don't know. Why, why would you do it like that? I don't know, which is why a lot of the private railroads actually were fairly successful and if they weren't did they run by like weight and time they had to be it was very costly to build railroads and so they tried to choose the most efficient route and most secure route to run their tracks right instead of the longest route to run their tracks which is why the government subsidies didn't really work a lot of them ended up going bankrupt and getting bought out by other people and or maybe the government anyway that's a different story for a different time This has been the fifth episode. It's a fairly long one, but I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll see you on the next one of Prestigious Minds.